You are listening to Danvers Audio, a podcast by the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. I'm Colin Smothers, your host and executive director of CBMW. Christopher Yuan has taught at Moody Bible Institute for more than 10 years, and his speaking ministry on faith and sexuality has reached five continents. He co-authored with his mother, Angela, their memoir, Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. He is also the author of Giving a Voice to the Voiceless. Dr. Yuan holds degrees from Moody Bible Institute, Wheaton College, and Bethel Seminary. The title of his latest book is Holy Sexuality in the Gospel, Sex, Desire, and Relationships Shaped by God's Grand Story. It's the topic of today's podcast. Christopher, your personal testimony informs much of what you do as a Christian professor and a speaker and an author. But there's a chance that many of our listeners are not familiar with your story, which you write about in your book, Out of the Far Country. Can we begin this interview by uh, you sharing how God has worked uniquely in your life? Yeah, sure. Uh, So uh, I I wasn't raised in a Christian home, and I wrestled with same-sex attractions from an early age. Then um, when I was in my early 20s, I actually came out of the closet. Now, my parents were, were not Christian. We weren't uh, I wasn't raised Christian, and uh, I came out of the closet, broke the news to my parents, and God used that crisis to bring my mother to faith and then my father to faith, and, well, I went in the opposite direction. I was living in Louisville, Kentucky at that time. Uh, from, I'm from Chicago. Uh, my parents raised me from Chicago. I moved to Louisville to start graduate school to become a dentist, uh, so I was pursuing my doctorate. I came out of the closet, broke the news to my parents, and I and they became Christians, but I was—I went in the opposite direction. Wanted nothing to do with Christianity or religion, and I unfortunately started doing drugs. Not all gays and lesbians do drugs or are even promiscuous. Some are, some aren't, but that is part of my story. And um, as a student, I didn't have much money, so I supported my habit of drugs by selling drugs. Uh, eventually, I was expelled from dental school. I moved to Atlanta, Georgia. And there I became not just a drug dealer, but a drug supplier. I, this whole time, my parents didn't know kind of the extent of my rebellion and, and uh, doing drugs or selling drugs. They knew that I was living as a gay man, and, and yet they knew that my biggest need, need was to know Jesus Christ. And they prayed for that miracle, um, and they... Uh, you know, they came to visit me one time in Atlanta. I told them to get out. Uh, they even gave me my my dad gave me his his Bible, and I threw it in the trash can. I, that's just to show how much I hated Christianity and hated the Bible. And it was just so obvious that I was just hopeless. But they didn't focus upon hopelessness, but upon the promises of God. And they enlisted over a hundred prayer warriors from church, from their Bible study fellowship group, and they began crying crying out to God that. God would do whatever it takes. That that was a prayer, a, a really hard but bold prayer that my mother began praying that he would do whatever it takes. Uh, she fasted every Monday for seven years and once fasted 39 days for me. Um, I, that miracle came with a bang on my door, and I had 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs on my front doorstep. And I had just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated my money, my drugs, and I was charged with a street value equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. Hmm. So I was facing 10 years to life. Uh, 
found myself in jail. I um, walked around the cell block, and um, you know, a few days after that, passed by this garbage can, and I'm thinking, that's my life. I, mean, I just wasted my life. I was about to pass it by, but there was something on top of that trash caught my eye. Bent over, I picked it up, and it was a Gideon's New Testament. Took the New Testament back to my cell, began reading it, and God's Word began to convict me. And one of the first things was telling me that my identity should not be in my sexuality, because everything about me was gay. I lived, uh, all my friends were gay. I lived in an apartment complex that was probably 90% gay. Uh, I worked out at a gay gym. I bought groceries at a gay Kroger. Everything about me, my world was gay, and all my friends were telling me that this is who you are. But as I read God's Word, I realized that sexuality is not who I am. I, my identity needs to be in Christ alone. I'm an image-bearer of God. And that was really helpful for me to separate my sexuality from who I was. And because when I did, that was when I was able to be, be able to, to, to figure out who I am, especially in light of the Bible, especially seeing that through God's eyes, um, I, I realized about my own sin and, and, and my own brokenness, my depravity, uh, and that wasn't just on sexuality, but on all things. And even this thought of what it would look like for someone like myself who uh, was coming out of, you know, pursuing same-sex relationships, what that looked like. Because I had thought, I mean, I heard the church, what it was telling me, the message, whether, you know, you know what I, or at least what I perceived, that homosexuality is not God's will, and so therefore heterosexuality is. So, I mean, part of that, half of that is true, but the second half is heterosexuality truly God's goal. But I thought, well, the Bible communicated many different forms of heterosexual relationships that are sinful. So I thought heterosexuality and all of its various forms can't be God's will. So I realized that the opposite of homosexuality isn't heterosexuality, but the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. And actually, the opposite of every sin struggle is holiness. And having that understanding that it was Christ and his righteousness um, and putting our faith in Christ first and that then the Holy Spirit abided in me to make me holy, that was really, really important for me to understand. But it wasn't kind of night and day. It took at least a year of my time in prison where it was just the Word of God, me, reading it, um, reading it through several times, of course. I mean, Kyle and I had lots of time on my hands, so I, I read through that, and and I knew that, um, you know, people ask, you know, who was it? What program? Was it a ministry that brought you to faith? And it wasn't any one ministry, any one person, but it was the Word of God throughout my whole time in prison that renewed my mind from a darkened, you know, I had a darkened mind, and God was renewing it through His Word to recognize not only my own depravity, but I put my identity in the wrong thing, that my sexuality shouldn't be who I was, but it's how I was, and that it gave me a realization that heterosexuality is not the goal, but it's Christ and His righteousness in pursuing holiness. So I was called to ministry while I was in prison, which is kind of interesting. You know, people are called to ministry in different locations. Well, I was called to ministry in prison. I applied to Moody Bible Institute. That was the only uh, Bible college I knew about in the Chicago area. Um, I applied to Moody while I was in prison. So it, when I got the application, which my parents mailed to me in prison, I, I, I was reading the, 
you know, the essays, answering them, and I, I realized at the end that I needed references. And they, these couldn't be from family members, but these had to be people who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. So my references was a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate. So <laughs> amazingly, I was accepted, uh, got out of prison, uh, and went to Moody for Bible college because I never got my bachelor's before uh, get, get going into dental school. So I got my bachelor's, got my master's in exegesis, and then actually finally got my doctorate of ministry in 2014 and and then wrote that book about with my mom where I introduced this concept of holy sexuality. That's an incredible story and a testimony and that book like you mentioned out of the far country it's a uh, it's a beautiful recollection of that and just a testimony to the power of God's word. This book that you've written though uh, holy sexuality and the gospel it's it's different uh, than your previous book. Why did you write this one? Yeah, the first book was really just our story uh, that I wrote with my mother. It was very intentional. We wanted to give you two sides of the story, one from a parent, one from a prodigal. And um, it, I view my first book as something that's for the heart. This, this newest book is it's for the head and for the hands because – very often, and I'm sure, Colin, you hear this, you, you get Christians that are like, well, I have my gay friend or my lesbian daughter, and I, I just need to love. And I kind of cringe at that. Not, not to say that, I mean, of course God is love, and of course we are, as Christians, called to love. But here's the question. What does that love look like? Hmm. Because if my truth is grounded in God's Word, well, my love is gonna, should be more in line with the way that God loves. But if my truth is grounded somewhere else, or it's really ambiguous and has no foundation, then my love won't be the way that God intends. And sometimes God's love is going to be tough love, and God's love is going to mean that it's going to be hard and difficult, and there's going to be sacrifice. And I want to love the way that God loves. So a lot of, kind of some of the books that you hear today, you know, just love, you know, we need to love people, uh, or we need to help them to be... Uh, good friends or have a covenant friendship, That's uh, it's a very pragmatic approach that doesn't really begin not only with good exegesis, which several good books have done, looking at the six different passages, but then continued from good exegesis, and the next, you know, that from there we need to actually look at systematic biblical and historical theology, which I haven't really son, seen done well. Our good friend Rosaria Butterfield um, I think was one of the first people that did that well, approaching this topic of sexual identity, not only from systematic theology, but philosophy, worldview. And I read that, her second book, Openness Unhindered, and I thought, man, we need more of this. Who else is doing this? Not, not really anybody. So I approached this book um, not just looking at the trees, which would be kind of exegesis and biblical studies, but looking at the forest, systematic and biblical theology, um, and, and, and uh, helping us understand not just homosexuality, but actually really understanding a theology of sexuality. Thinking of the world outside the church, um, the issue of identity is such a, a central component to uh, the project of modernity. And the issue of identity also plays such a central role in, in your testimony. How is, how is uh, a biblical understanding of identity um, not only central to, to your book, but also how you think about the issue of homosexuality? 
Yeah, I mean, it's even the secular term, when it comes to homosexuality, people don't really use that phrase anymore. I think more often you will hear the term sexual identity, and when it comes to transgenderism, it's gender identity. So identity is a pretty core aspect to that, and and, and I know even there are some Christians who will argue and say, no, you know, when, when sexuality shouldn't be thought about in terms of identity, but you can't get around that. Actually, even the American Psychological Association, their, their definition includes the word identity. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty core part of that definition, that sexual orientation is a pattern of desires that are romantic, sexual, um, but it also it, it relates to uh, one's identity. And that identity aspect is not only personal identity, in other words, what, what I think about my, myself, but it is also a sociological term relating to what community do I relate to most. And because of that, I don't identify as a gay man anymore for two reasons, because gay has been too closely associated with an ontological reality, which it isn't. But also, it's related to the sociological reality. In other words, I relate more to my gay friends than others. I, I know, you know several friends who would identify as a, a gay Christian or even as a gay celibate Christian. And that term, in essence, communicates. And when you look at their lives, their closest friends, the people that they relate most with, are people who would also identify as gay. And for myself, I don't necessarily uh, would relate most with people who would identify as gay or even those who would have same-sex attractions. Who, who I, the community that I relate to most, more than any other community in the world, is the body of Christ. And hence, that's why if I'm going to take any label, it's that, that I'm a Christian. And so if sexuality is not who we are, then the question posed is then, well, then who, we, who are we? This is why I really believe that we can't understand human sexuality without beginning with theological anthropology, the study of humanity through God's eyes. And that, all, that begins with a very important concept from Genesis 1, 27, that we are all created in the image of God. That is one of the most essential aspects of being human. Of course, then Jesus Christ came, and that's why I talk about you know the the, my, the subtitle of, of my book, Sex, Design, Relationships Shaped by God's Grand Story, which would be creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. So understanding creation, fall, but also kind of redemption, Christ came, and he is the perfect representation. He is the perfect image of God. And so when we as Christians, as image bearers, we need to reflect that, that Christ is the one who is the perfect image of God. And, and, and so therefore, when I talk about identity in Christ, I'm talking about the image of God. I'm talking about union with Christ, not some kind of modern concept of identity that, that might not be connected with the Bible, but identity, union with Christ, the image of God, the image of Christ, is very much a biblical theological concept that we have seen throughout the centuries and throughout the millennia of the Church. Looking back at the last decade, two, three, uh, in the church and, and development of, of issues and controversies and conversations, it's hard to think about a more um, controversial and fraught conversation than uh, what swirls around the issue of homosexuality. And yeah. those who have been paying attention uh, realize that there's been a lot of movement um, over the past 10 or 20 years, uh, specifically... Uh, 
within Protestant circles, uh, also within Catholic circles as well, um, and specifically around the notion of gay Christianity, which which you already mentioned. Uh, and again, those that are are familiar with this conversation know that there are there are two sides to uh, to this concept of gay Christianity, self self proclaimed. There's the side A, gay Christian who um, doesn't see any prohibition uh, in the Bible. Um, with regard to homosexual relationships, gay marriage, etc. And then there's the side B, uh, which, which acknowledges and, and tends to embrace um, the Bible's prescriptions and, and prohibitions against uh, homosexual marriage and, and even homosexual relationships in, in some capacity, uh, but, but tend to still refer to themselves as, as a gay Christians. So taking that first group, uh, side A, gay Christian, uh, this is people like Matthew Vines, James Brownson, uh, who you uh, interact with in your book. How is, how, is your, how is your approach distinct from side A, gay Christianity? Well, I, I think, uh, so side A, gay Christianity, I mean, Matthew Vines, you know, he essentially was um, rehashing James Bronson's uh, book, which it's interesting, you know, because each each one of them, uh, you know, James Bronson, he was son who came out to him that then, you know, he had to reimagine uh, what what biblical truth is saying on this topic, which which really t- goes to show that it was experience that was driving his hermeneutics and not good exegesis. I mean, so I mean, it's really he had made up his mind because his son came out to him, and then he was looking for. Uh, what he would call exegesis, which actually is a pretty textbook example of eisegesis, mm. um, to then explain, uh, you know, his approach. Uh, and Matthew Vines, uh, you know, would it, many who hold who call themselves gay celibate Christians, they would not say their mainline, you know, follow the mainline denomination. Um, or at least some of them would, and they would argue they have a high view of Scripture. But it's interesting because you can't have a high view of Scripture without truly holding to inerrancy, and I, I do not believe uh, Matthew Vines does hold to inerrancy, especially as we would hold to it. You know, nowadays me, people like to say they hold to inerrancy and then nuance their understanding, but um, I just, I, you know, as my good, our good friend Rosario Butterfield says, we don't need more nuance, we need more Jesus. <laughs> and um, so inerrancy, I mean, is are there any errors in God's Word, or are, and are we correctly doing exegesis? Because many of the people that Matthew Vines will cite don't hold to inerrancy. They don't really truly have a high view of Scripture, and I think that is really what it comes down to, because um, high view of Scripture uh, will actually show in one's hermeneutics that we're looking for authorial intent, and we are uh, also using uh, Scripture to help us understand Scripture. In other words, we're reading things canonically, and this is where James Bronson, Matthew Vines, and Justin Lee, and everyone else, um, uh, where they fail. They're not reading Scripture canonically and not catching the intertextual echoes. You know, in the six passages, there are there's a lot of intertextual echo where they're actually pointing back to one of whether it's, whether it's Genesis 19, a Sodom and Gomorrah passage, where Ezekiel uh, in chapter in Ezekiel 16, verse 49 and 50, particularly in chapter in verse 50, where he's uh, relating back to and pointing back to Leviticus 20:13, uh, 
um, uh, that you know a man lying with a male uh, and 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 that they have committed an abomination. Those two words are very significant. You don't find those two words together, especially abomination singular. So there's a lot of in- intertextuality going on. And then Romans 1, where Paul is pointing back to Genesis, uh, eight different times he's using words that he pulls from the Septuagint to uh, just continuously point people back to Genesis. So when he's talking about natural and unnatural, uh, that that doesn't mean just natural in the kind of uh, Greek uh, philosophy and Catholic kind of understanding of natural law, but it's actually natural means according to God's created order. And then, of course, in Genesis First uh, Corinthians six and First Timothy one, looking at that Greek compound word arsenokoitai, when you break that down and then look back again to the Septuagint, you will find that those uh, two words are found in Leviticus twenty thirteen, which points then to that this is what Paul is talking about: well, man lying with a male. So you don't find that engagement because when you actually do read things canonically, that puts guard guardrails on your hermeneutics. And without that, it's much easier to read uh, read off the page into false teaching. And and so I would say that's probably the main thing: poor exegesis that is you know seen through a lack of uh, reading the Bible canonically and catching those clear intertextual echoes. The organization that I work for, CBMW, uh, we released a, a statement, the Nashville Statement in 2017, uh, which you were an original signer uh, to. And we address side A, uh, gay Christianity, in Article 10, uh, where we write, we affirm that it is sinful to approve of homosexual immorality or transgenderism and that such approval constitutes an essential departure from Christian faithfulness and witness. That language, uh, that kind of elevates the issue um, as not just a tertiary or not a, a secondary um, thing to disagree upon, but it, it really is in this side A gay Christianity error uh, to say that God approves of, of gay marriage, to, go, to say that God a- approves of of homosexual, um, sexual and romantic relationships is really an, an essential departure from historic Christianity. Yes. Yeah, I, I think, and this is why um, what I foresee in the near future uh, isn't so much, when it comes to sexuality, isn't so much that churches are going to fall away and, and kind of come in line with the mainline denominations. Uh, where they affirm same-sex marriage. What I see is the next half step, uh, which actually it seems to be there's there's many uh, churches that would maybe even use the term that they're evangelical, that they are treating sexual morality as a secondary or tertiary, tertiary issue. Hmm. In other words, they, they kind of make this statement uh, or this argument um, this is not a core doctrine. In other words, sexual morality is not a core doctrine. It's not essential. It's not a gospel issue. And then there, and then they make the, the conclusion. And therefore, um, it's it's just a kind of a negotiable item, almost equivalent to um, whether it is, uh, you know, baptism or uh, you know the sign gifts. And um, actually, there's even a book out, you know, about the four different views, you know, which I think, um, I mean, of course, from an academic perspective, those discussions should go on, which they already are. But then to kind of put it in a series on par with baptism, 
uh, all these different views, uh, you know, like the charismatic gifts, um, these more issues that, that are a bit more negotiable, uh, that then treats sexual morality as a negotiable item. And I, this is where I really strongly disagree, because uh, though, of course, you know, morality is not what saves, but the way that Paul treats sexual immorality is that this is not something where we just need to agree to disagree. So when I see a brother who is in serial unrepentant sin, continuous unrepentant sin, what that means is discipline, and that's loving discipline. So when even I hear people who say that, you know, you or me or people, you know, part of CBMW or, or others who, you know, who, who've signed on national statement, we are dis- disciplinarians. I don't know where that comes from, but in other words, it kind of gives the impression that if there's a brother who I tend church together and he is living in sin, but not just sin, but unrepentant sin, continuous unrepentant sin, um, there are some Christians who will say, well, we I just don't know. We just need to agree to disagree, and they wouldn't discipline them. And this is where I would say they are living outside of orthodoxy. Hmm. Well said. I want to get to the issue of, of side B, gay Christianity, so-called. Um, the, when the Nashville Statement was released in 2017, uh, much of the controversy swirled around Article 7. And I just want to read Article 7 of the Nashville Statement. It says, We affirm that self-conception as male or female should be defined by God's holy purposes in creation and redemption as revealed in Scripture. And then the denial, we deny that adopting a homosexual or transgender self-conception is consistent with God's holy purposes in creation and redemption. And a lot of the controversy, uh, I believe, that sort of stemmed from the release of the Nashville Statement, and specifically Article 7, was first of all a failure to distinguish between what Article 7 was saying um, in pointing out the inconsistencies of of the identification of, of being a gay Christian, and the, the full-on affirmation that we see going on inside A um, that's, that's talked about and, spo- and spoken against in Article 10. Um, so in the same way that side A and side B, gay Christianity, distinguishes themselves, there is a distinction uh, in the way that the Nashville Statement addresses those two movements. Um, but for those that are not uh, totally initiated in this conversation, side, side B, gay Christianity, uh, Again, these are, these are terms that that these people themselves would use, include um, Wesley Hill and Ron Belgau, who are um, they're in charge of the website Spiritual Friendships, and then uh, more recently Nate Collins uh, and the conference Revoice, about which there's been much discussion recently. How is it that your approach distinguishes itself from? Uh, side B gay Christianity, and how does holy sexuality in the gospel help us um, to sort of navigate some of the error that that we see there in, in Revoice and in side B gay Christianity? Yeah, so uh, thanks for asking this, Colin. So uh, just to be clear, I I do not define, you know, either label as saying I'm, I would not say I'm a side A gay Christian, nor would I say I'm a side B gay Christian. Um, I, I feel like 
when one identifies as gay Christian and then realizes, oh, well, that can cause some confusion, so I need to then say I'm either side IA or side B or I'm a gay celibate Christian, that that, that kind of is a little bit of a red flag to say that, well, maybe there, this term uh, gay uh, uh, can be problematic, and, and, that is, and, and I do believe that, and therefore I, I choose not to. And a lot of times um, – and, and, and I know that uh, – and I know some of these people uh, in the side B gay Christian movement and <clears throat> the spiritual friendship movement, uh, and I know where some of that – where they formed, where they started to form, and it was around the time that Exodus was closing down and shutting down. Exodus is um, a former organization that, that started – that was helping people – in essence, uh, the goal, their goal was to help people dealing with unwanted same-sex attractions, which, which that there would be okay. But then their focus was helping them to change their orientation, in a sense, through psychotherapy and through counseling and support groups. So in essence, the, the result was lifting up heterosexuality as the goal. And there's still actually some uh, groups that are continuing to uh, push that and say that that is what true change is when – uh, instead of taking what is biblical change look like, uh, which is more in line with, with what I would call, you know, in line with holy sexuality, biblical view of uh, change, as opposed to a secular understanding of change grounded in orientation change. So uh, spiritual friendship kind of formed out of that. It was a response to the ex-gay movement, where it was lifting up heterosexuality as, in a sense, a good goal or as uh, that orientation as being good. But then I think what they did was they swung in the pendulum in the opposite direction too far, where instead of elevating the, the, the heterosexual orientation, the straight orientation, they then elevated gay as a good or legitimate orientation, even though they would refuse, uh, they would uh, agree and say that same-sex sexual behavior is sin. Uh, and they will say that same-sex sexual desires are sin, but they would say the other aspects of being gay that are non-sexual are okay. And this is where I would differentiate because they don't draw the line and say that same-sex romantic desires, though non-sexual, uh, same-sex romantic desires um, are sinful. Uh, as a matter of fact, many lesbian relationships uh, – have very little sex, and it is mostly same-sex romantic desires. Uh, Rosario Butterfield, um, you know, though the desires that she had were less sexual and more romantic. And according then to side B Christianity, I I, I haven't really heard clarity that they're calling out non-sexual but same-sex romantic desires uh, as sinful. The other aspect is then they say that you know being gay is sanctifiable because uh, my I have same-sex desires that aren't sexual, and they might even say they aren't romantic. But then uh, their desires to be a friend, uh, you know, platonic desires, and they say that's part of being gay. And where I disagree with that is I do not believe that same-sex platonic desires are part of sexuality, and this is why. Because if it were, then Colin, that would make you gay or bi. Because I, I, I think you have desires to be friends with people of the same sex. That does not make one, as, as I'm using this side 
you know, be Christianity because I don't like the term gay. But they would that would make you gay, they would say, or that would make you to have same-sex attractions. But simply having it, God put in everyone a desire to have intimate, healthy, non-sexual, non-romantic desires. That is not part of, that is not in the sexuality realm. And to broaden out so wide where then everyone would be bisexual, that, that kind of makes it, you know, where sexuality would make no, no more sense. So it's, it's about the terminology, but I mean, there's other things where uh, they believe that people who have same-sex attractions, or, or what they would say, people who are gay, uh, can never be married to some of the opposite sex, um, or even uh, develop desire for any person of the opposite sex. So people who would be side B, even though some of them are married, they would then say they have, uh, they call it a mixed orientation marriage. And I just, I'm not, I just, I don't know why we need to kind of throw in all these different categories. I mean, if you don't have any desire for your wife, I don't think you should marry uh, your wife. Uh, I, I think that God can, even if I may still have same-sex attractions, I do believe, and I've seen it in others, where God can give me or an individual with same-sex attractions desires for one person of the opposite sex who turns out to be their spouse, their wife, or like in my case, a wife, or maybe a woman's case, it could be her husband. Um, I wouldn't call that that person that has become heterosexual. That's why I use the term holy sexuality, which is chastity and singleness, faithfulness in marriage. I think it brings just much more razor-sharp clarity instead of kind of using all these really vague and ambiguous terms that really cause more confusion. Actually, even I think the term same-sex attraction can cause confusion. And, and in my book, when I was talking more about morality and ethics and same-sex attractions, I then turned from using the term attraction and started using the term temptation and desire. Uh, but then kind of, and there's many other things, but one definitely is, like we touched on before, how many side side be gay Christians, they do not believe that sexual morality is uh, something that needs to be disciplined, uh, and particularly same-sex sexual behavior, uh, that we just need to agree to disagree, and we can actually still be in communion together, which would go contrary to 1 Corinthians in the way that um, very much Paul was clear about the individual who calls himself a brother and is living in unrepentant sin, that 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 we need to treat them as an unbeliever, um, show discipline uh, or, or, or practice discipline, but of course, as Second Corinthians later says, in a very restorative, redemptive way. There's so much here to unpack, and uh, I wish we had a whole other hour to be able to talk about this. Um, but but it seems like one of the the key issues here with the discussion swirling around Revoice and so-called gay Christianity is the nature of how orientation is defined and also, uh, as you pointed out, sort of the sine qua non of, of homosexuality, including uh, same-sex sexual desire, and even the moral nature of that sexual desire. Is sexual desire for the same sex inherently sinful, or is it only when when it is acted upon. And I think a lot of the movement last summer ahead of uh, the first revoice in 2018, uh, Denny Burke and Ron Belgau and Rosaria Butterfield uh, had kind of a back and forth on this issue on even the, the nature of the sinfulness of same-sex uh, sexual desire. Ron Belgau, being a Catholic, initially seemed to disagree with the sinful nature of, of desire. Uh, it seems as though there's been some movement on that front 
um, at least with the the recent um, release of uh, Revoice's, I think their doctrinal statement or, or their statement of faith. And I am curious a little bit how Ron Belgau, if if he, he I think he's an advisor at, with Revoice, uh, if he has signed on to their declaration that same-sex sexual desire is sinful, because it seems like that's a movement from how he was arguing in in 2018. But I really like yeah. the way that, that you talk about same-sex sexual attraction, um, the difference between a natural consequence and a moral consequence of the fall. Um, mm. And I, I want you to unpack that for us a little bit, and I want to put that in relief to how I've seen people in the side, bay, the side B uh, gay Christian world talk about this. Um, some have suggested that that gayness is a is a pre-fall category, uh, not even a, a result of the fall, but something that God could have and did create um, in humanity before the fall, such that someone could have been gay before the fall. And even some have suggested, it seems in the literature, um, Greg Coles, uh, even Nate Collins's book seems to imply that there there's a potential that in the new heavens and the new earth, there that, that someone might be gay. Now, in their newest documents, they say that same-sex sexual desire will not be in the new heavens and new earth, but there's not a clear understanding in the way that they talk about aesthetic orientation or, you know, orientation of the world, whether or not gayness, uh, you know, will exist in the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, can you help us yeah. understand and, and kind of parse these things specifically with yeah, your paradigm of, of natural and moral consequence of the fall? Yes. Okay. So, uh, I, you know, so I, I would say, you know, side B gay Christians, they, they would probably say, oh, uh, and, and it's, it's kind of a few that would say that it's pre-fall, but it's definitely still there. But uh, let's kind of address those that would say, well, it is a result of the fall. But then we need to realize as a result of the fall, well, there are some things that aren't necessarily um, a specific uh, moral consequence. And I'm saying moral. I mean, I guess everything that's a result of the fall is moral but, uh, or, or immoral in a sense. Uh, it's a moral consequence. But in the sense that it doesn't lead to actual sin. So... Uh, diabetes, let's say, for example, or, you know, I, I'm nearsighted or, you know, or cancer. You know, these are things that are a result of the fall, death, a result of the fall, uh, but it's not actual sin. So it's not actual sin to have cancer. It's not actual sin, you know, et cetera, um, or being deaf. I, I've heard uh, someone, a writer, uh, Karen Keene, that said, uh, and, and she's, because she's hearing impaired, and she says that, um, her deafness, but now she actually used to be side B, now she's side A, uh, which I see a, a, lots of people progressive. I very, very seldom do I see uh, someone who was side A and now has slid into side B. I'd love to hear about that. If there are people out there that you know, I'd love to hear about that. But most of the stories that I hear are people who were side B and slide into side A, whether it's Julie Rogers, et cetera. Um, and not, you know, uh, if there are, great, uh, but I hear way more stories of people sliding into side, side, e, side A from side B. Uh, but Karen Keene would say that uh, her deafness is, um, uh, her, her being a lesbian is equivalent to being deaf. And so what she's doing is she's equating her, uh, you know, uh, the experience of her same-sex attractions, which is what she would say, being lesbian, which, of course, I don't think that being verb should be used to describe uh, something that is purely experiential and how we are, not who we are. But she would say that being a lesbian is equivalent to 
uh, being deaf, and she's she's making the reality of sexuality and same-sex attractions a result, she thinks, of a, a natural result of the fall as opposed to a moral result. So the moral result would be things that do actually, that come from our sin nature. And this all comes down to how we understand Scripture and whether same-sex sexual attractions are sinful or not. Now, now again, I, I, I kind of sometimes want to pull out my hair because I feel like there's a, refu- re- a refusal uh, from spiritual friendship and revoice to address the reality that uh, they, they sometimes overstate their point in that, yes, sexuality is not all about sexual desires. For example, lesbians, much of what they experience are not sexual desires. Um, but then they they make everything else non-sexual desires. And so then they make the assumption that then all non-sexual desires are not sinful. And I really disagree with that because you have non-sexual but romantic same-sex desires that are sinful, and then all the other types of desires that are not sexual and that are not romantic, I would call those platonic desires. Platonic, by definition, means non-sexual and non-romantic, are not part of same-sex attractions. And again, kind of as I said before, because if we make that, and, and this is also where the argument comes in as, as aesthetic orientation, kind of, I appreciate one's beauty. Well, that, what does that mean? I, I, again, I, I feel like there's too much ambiguity in the terminology to create something, to use something even more ambiguous than this, um, and you know, aesthetic, uh, a desire or uh, appreciating one's beauty. My mother appreciates the beauty of other pretty women. That does not make her lesbian. Hmm. And so that's my biggest argument uh, in actually not – I don't see bringing more clarity with many of these new books. It's actually just bringing more confusion. Um, I I also uh, see oftentimes where people talk about same-sex love. Uh, They have the ability to love other people the same sex. Well – I mean, today in our world, love has been so misunderstood. Um, you know, I love chocolate. I love this television show. Um, but also, uh, love can mean a justification for sex. And, you know, love does not equal sex. Love does not actually necessarily re- equal romance either. Um, and so knowing that distinction and having more clarity, uh, I think, in my mind, when we're talking about same-sex attractions, I think it's best to break it down to different clear biblical categories or, or, or terminology that's rooted in Scripture. So, for example, I will use the words same-sex temptations, and then same-sex sexual desires, same-sex romantic desires, and same-sex platonic desires. And I think that can really help us uh, move forward in the conversation and bring clarity on what is it that God has called us to and what is not. And when we were placing things in the realm of that sinful behavior, which would be same-sex sexual behavior, same-sex sexual desires, and same-sex romantic desires, well, if that's sinful behavior, then that automatically tells us that this, yes, this is a result of the fall, but more specifically, it's a moral result of the fall coming from our sin nature. That's one of the things that I really appreciate about your book, Christopher, is is the clear definitions and the 
the desire to speak very, very carefully and clearly around the issue of, of attraction and, and temptation and desire. And I think this is the, one of the things that's frustrating for me looking in on, on side B gay Christianity, so-called, is uh, specifically their failure to distinguish when they're talking about gay and gayness, um, whether or not, uh, now it's, it's a, uh, it's an evident and, uh, and very clear reality that some, that Christians, uh, people like yourself and people like Sam Albury and others, um, though, though you're saved, uh, and justified are not fully yet sanctified, uh, and free of, of all sinful desires. And sometimes those sinful desires are sinful desires for the same sex, um, so th- that caveat aside, um, it's not clear to me that, that when side B gay Christianity talks about being gay, that they're mapping that squarely onto the old man, uh, that Paul talks about instead of, instead of mapping that on, on, on the new man, which I, I think that they're doing. And, and that's a paradigm that's, I've just, uh, recently started to think about, and I saw in your book, how is it that, that we can you know, helpful or not, whether or not we, we use that term gay, how can we get people to understand and, and to think about mortification of sin and, and mortification of, of even unwanted desires and attractions and things, and, and talk more about the reality that there are two eyes, Paul talks about this in Romans 7, two eyes within the believer, mm-hmm. the old man and yep. the new man, and, and how we even conceive of ourselves uh, and what aspects of the eye our old man and, and new man. Uh, how would you help us to think through a little bit more with, with respect to that and, and this issue of gay Christianity? Yeah, I, I see, it all comes down to definitions. Um, and I, I just wish that there would be uh, more of these conversations around what people mean when they use the word gay, uh, because uh, there seems to be uh, so much you know, so those of us, you know, you and I and others who would uh, push back and and say, why use this term gay? And so, and I know Wes Hill and, and others, they will defend and say, when I say gay, I'm not saying this is who I am. So great. Uh, you know, I, I'm just mean this is, you know, and I'm kind of paraphrasing, but uh, this is part of my reality, that it's something that's enduring, that isn't, hasn't changed yet. Um, uh, but that's fine that they would say that, but my my kind of uh, reticence is, um, in a sense, there's a naive, naivete to think that we can redefine words that are so clearly already defined by society. Uh, we don't have that liberty to give, uh, to limit the scope, uh, the semantic range of words that are ready clearly uh, defined in a certain way. Uh, the term gay, yes, it do, does define uh, the direction of one's sexual and romantic desires, uh, but also it's pretty clear that the, uh, pretty much everyone, when they use the term gay in a secular world and even in the Christian world, the term gay is uh, conflated with uh, personhood. Uh, so to to not recognize that is is uh, I mean it's you know we, we need to uh, be responsible in recognizing uh, the entire meanings layers of meanings that 
for the words that we use. But like you say, the mortification of sin, I mean, if we need to then ask, well, when you say gay, what do you mean? You know, because, you know, obviously it's a sexual desires and sexual behaviors, but of course, sexuality, you can say, is not all of that. And I would say, of course it isn't. It's also romantic desires. Um, but so romantic desires are, though, is that sinful or not? And I have yet to really hear a clear articulation of whether same sex romantic desires are sinful or not. I mean, to me, I think that that's step number one. Like, mm-hmm. are same-sex romantic desires sinful, or is it okay? Should we then form a marriage that has no sex between two men? In other words, you know, what some would call a covenanted friendship. Is that really the goal, to replace marriage with friendship minus the sex? And then for them, in essence, to have a romantic relationship that's non-sexual, because that's what it seems to be communicating, that same-sex romantic relationships, same-sex romantic desires devoid of sex would still be allowable, and I don't think that is the case. Um, and then the other thing, you know, so that, those are things that is part in my mind of what being gay would mean, because I, as, a, as a person who fully identified as gay, that's what it meant for me. I I desired not only sexual but romantic relationships with people of the same sex. But now as a Christian, as a person, uh, as a new man, I realized that that was my old self and that my old self loves to rear its head. <laughs> uh, and, and my flesh, um, you know, people say same-sex relationships are unnatural, and that's the way that Paul talks about it. But from an experiential perspective, it's pretty natural feeling for me. Our sin is pretty natural feeling for us. and But that's something that I need to resist and flee and run and put to death daily, not something that then I need to uh, relish or, or to try to make good or try to make pretty or sanctify it. But it is something that I do need to put to death, not to say that same-sex platonic desires is something that I need to mortify, but I recognize that that's not in the realm of sexuality. That's, the, that's in the realm of just being human, and I would, I would even say that's part of the image of God is because God is a relational being, and so we too are relational beings, uh, but that's not part of my sin nature, nor is it part of my sexuality. That's really well said. Um... We've been in the weeds a little bit, Christopher, and uh, I thank you for helping us to to chart a, a course through these these things. But yeah. I don't want I don't want our listeners to get the impression that that that's all your book is about. Um, your book is very accessible. Your your book, I mean, it includes several dozen pages of study guides to be able to be used in small group settings and Sunday school classes, et cetera. Yep. And even the the basically second half of this book um, is about uh, not only life in Christ and sanctification and life as the church, but also mm-hmm. what it looks like uh, to evangelize um, people uh, who identify as gay. And how sure. would you um, help someone to think about maybe a loved one, um, a family member, a friend uh, who's identifying as gay, uh, living out as gay, um, what is the best thing for us as Christians who, who truly love people and truly want to see the Lordship of Christ to, um, to, to come to fruition uh, in that person's life? What's, what's, what are some things that we can do? 
Yeah, I think, first of all, I mean, it, it can be pretty basic, and, and this is why, you know, yeah, we were in the weeds, which is really important, because I think we need to really think right and actually correct some of our wrong thinking first before we try to do right. And so that's why beginning, you know, half of my book or two-thirds, uh, helping us understand all these concepts of identity and desire and temptation and, and even this secular concept of orientation, which unfortunately is conflated with identity and then marriage, two chapters of marriage, two chapters of singleness, and then jump into then just the, like the last third of the book, very practical things. How do we minister to others who might, Christians who experience same such attractions? And also how do we share Christ with those in the gay community? And, and I think it's, 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 it's some things that we need to avoid. I mean, there are some terms that as Christians seem natural to us, uh, but can be offensive. And, and I don't want to think that I'm a, you know, uh, you know, a PC police, you know, trying to, you know, police every single word we use. But there is a sense of sensitivity in that if my main goal is to point that person to Christ, not to morality, but point that person to Christ, and because not to say that morality is unimportant, but once I point that person to Christ and once they put their faith in Christ, the morality will definitely automatically follow. So I want to point that person to Christ and make sure that, uh, for example, a lot of times Christians, they like to use the word uh, lifestyle or choice. Um, for example, we'll say uh, you chose to live a gay lifestyle. Um, I never use those words as an unbeliever. And as a matter of fact, I know it can be offensive to some of our gay friends and gay coworkers and gay neighbors. So I'm willing to not use those words for the sake of hopefully uh, building that relationship and having the opportunity to, sh to share Christ with someone. Um, but also, I, I think we don't have to feel like we have to answer every question all the time. Um, there needs to be some... We, we need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit to see uh, when the Holy Spirit is guiding us to say something and not to say something. I mean, if we look at Jesus Christ, he didn't answer every question all the time. Sometimes he was silent. Sometimes he answered a question with a question. Sometimes he gave an answer to another question that wasn't even asked, because Jesus, being God, knew what was most important. And I, I, I believe that telling someone uh, and convincing someone that something is or isn't sin isn't the most important thing. It is important, but it's not the most important thing. But the most important thing is first that uh, we point people to Christ and that they would put faith, their faith in Christ so that the Holy Spirit will abide in them and indwell them to then guide them into truth. I, I, I don't find any other way that we can convince another person that same-sex relationships are sinful other than the Holy Spirit um, indwelling in them and giving them a new mind. But it's other basic things that we need to uh, be intentional in reaching out and and uh, listening to others and, and inviting people into our home. I love um, Rosario Butterfield's newest book, uh, The Gospel Comes with a house, house Key, how Pastor Ken Smith, a retired pastor, and his um, wife, Floyd, who is now with the Lord, uh, how they just invited her into their home and just had dinner. And he was a pastor, and he didn't invite her to church for like a full year. And, you know, I, he just read the Bible, built a friendship, and they, they didn't shy away from difficult things, but they uh, he lived the gospel before he preached the gospel, and it was really through gospel hospitality that 
our sister Rosario came to know the Lord. And so we need to practice that radical hospitality. Uh, that 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 is an amazing way to make our homes not a fortress, but make it a haven, make it a place, an oasis that people can come together, believers and unbelievers, uh, in a not just safe, because of course that's a buzzword today, but I, I want to say as the church, we need to not only be safe, but we must be redemptive as well. So we have a safe and redemptive place for people to come together, uh, to be free to talk about whatever issues on their mind, but also to be free to talk about Christ and the Lord. Amen. The mission of the church is not to turn gay people into straight people, but to turn sinners to their Savior and Amen. to make disciples of the triune God. And Christopher, I think your book um, is timely, it's important, it's a gift to the church. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield, who wrote the foreword, she calls it the most important humanly composed book about biblical sexuality and godly living for our times. That's high praise coming from Rosaria, and uh, and I'd echo her sentiment. So thank you for for this book. Uh, one one last question I always ask all my guests: uh, what's in the what's in the hopper for uh, for your next book, if if you have one? <laughs> oh man, um, you know I'm I'm not too sure. I, I think. I'm wondering if, and this can be really relevant to CBMW, um, and I don't know if this is going to be an article or a book, uh, but there's, I, I see so much confusion today where people are conflating four categories. First category has to do with uh, male-female sex, and that's biological, uh, physical, and I would even argue that it's actually spirit, it's a spiritual reality, pointing to Genesis 127. So that's a very objective category. The second category is a very subjective category that the world has elevated as, as primacy, and that is the concept of gender. Even though in the past we equated sex and gender as being the same, but now psychological world has uh, differentiated the two, sex, male and female, biological. Um, and of course, as Christians, we say that's spiritual as well. But also uh, the concept of gender uh, which is a psychological reality of what I think about myself as being either male or female. And that's a purely subjective reality. Third category is masculinity and femininity that can be often so, more of a social construct than others. Uh, and then the last category is a Christian biblical category, which is manhood and womanhood. And I would love to be able to have... Here's, here's the issue. Why do I want to do this? Because I see the world confusing the first three categories, because, of course, they don't hold to the, the, the fourth category, biblical manhood or, and womanhood, which is understandable. Uh, but they conflate these three categories and say, well, masculinity and femininity is often more socially bound than anything else. So therefore, this is where the bad logic comes, therefore, male and female is a social construct. And that's where I would, I, I would very much disagree and, and say, there are three categories. Let's not conflate and confuse them. But Christians will also do that as well, and they will look at manly or masculine and confuse that as being a male. And manly in the sense of kind of the American Western understanding of that manly or uh, masculine, or confuse that with biblical manhood. Um, so I, I think those are, I don't know, something that I have interest in, and, but uh, if I have the time, that's, that's always the main thing, whether I have the time to write, <laughs> write or not. <laughs> Well, as someone who's deeply invested in those things, I do hope you have the time to write. And if there's any way that we at CBMW can help you do that, whether it's an article form or, or a book, we hope to, uh, to see that uh, come to see the light of day. <laughs> uh, thank you. Appreciate that. 
Well, Christopher, thank you so much for your time and, and for your work here, uh, for what you've done for the church in this book and, and just for your ministry. I uh, really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Colin. Resources like Danvers Audio are made possible by the financial support of our individual and church partners. If you or someone you know has benefited from the ministry of CBMW, please consider becoming a partner today by visiting cbmw.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening to Danvers Audio.